Let us give our attention to the reading of God's holy and infallible word from 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 to 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to it by the Holy Spirit among us and in us tonight as we consider this passage. Well, last week together, we considered the question, who is your father, God or the devil? And John told us that it is evident, it is manifest, it is clear to distinguish between the two different kinds of people that exist in the world. On the one hand, there are those who claim to be Christians, yet They live as a law unto themselves, lawless in their hearts, with unrepentant sin. And they therefore prove to be the children of the devil. On the other hand, there are those, John says, that are marked by a pursuit of righteousness, doing what is right according to God's law. And in that way, they show themselves to be children of God born again by God's seed, and therefore they have a new nature within them, implanted there by God himself. And in the last line, if you're looking at the text, in chapter 3, verse 10, in that last part, John also added this. In 1 John 3:10. he says, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so that phrase there serves as a bridge between the last passage we considered and the one that is before us tonight. And we see that John is showing us another mark of born-again Christians. These are, we could say, the birthmarks of every true Christian. On the one hand, as we saw last week, they practice righteousness. And secondly, they love their brothers and sisters in the church family. And it is that second mark of brotherly love, that birthmark of love that John picks up and unpacks for us here in this passage that we just read. And the impression that John wants to put upon our hearts tonight is this, that God's seed in his children always germinates and grows in love for God's children. Therefore, God's true children can be known by their love for one another, their love for their other brothers and sisters in Christ. And this love, he says, is not only expressed in word, not just lip service, but also in deed and in truth. And again, as we saw last week, 
We find here tonight that John's teaching is rooted in Jesus's teaching because John is showing us and telling us what he himself heard with his own ears, what he saw with his own eyes when he followed Jesus and received instruction by Jesus. And Jesus said in John 13, 34 to 35, this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that passage, that teaching from Jesus lies at the heart of what John is getting at here. We'll consider three points tonight. First, the hatred of the world. Secondly, the love of Christ. And thirdly, our love for one another. So first, the hatred of the world. John continues to show us here who are the children of the devil. So he's carrying that same theme that we saw last week from the passage just prior. And he draws our attention to a man, namely Cain, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. And in verse 12, John gives us a strong exhortation. He says, don't be like Cain. Now, kids, remember as we study and read the Bible, that there are characters in the Bible, there are people in the Bible that are worthy of our imitation, that we should imitate, that we should copy. And yet, even those who were godly in the faith, occasionally they made grave mistakes and they too sinned against God. And sometimes we are called to imitate their godly behavior, those in the Bible who walked by faith, And some of their names are even written in that hall of honor, that hall of those who walk by faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's a list of those who had an honorable life walking by faith in the Lord. But other times, like this one, we are called to not be like them. These are those, we could say, who fill the hall of shame in the Bible. Those who sold their birthright for soup those who made a shipwreck of their faith, those who tried to deal with their guilty conscience by washing their hands with water. And of that hall of shame, that's kind of before our minds, the first and foremost, according to John, is the firstborn son of humanity, Cain. The author Jude, verse 11, goes so far as to say that all false teachers have taken the way of Cain. One commentator, Michael Green, says that Cain stands for the cynical, materialistic character of one who defies God and despises man. He is devoid of faith and love. And how does John refer to him here in in the verses that are before us? He calls him the one who is of the evil one. Now, in what sense was Cain of the evil one? That is the devil. Well, if you remember last week, we saw that God's seed abides in his children, those who are born again. And so when a person hears the gospel and is born again by the spirit of God, God's seed is planted within their heart. They have a new nature that is now bent towards righteousness and not towards evil and therefore they are god's seed his offspring his children now what did god say about 
his seed and the devil's seed way back in the beginning, right after the fall of Adam and Eve, there in the Garden of Eden. What's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel announcement. And it's found there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God told the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Or in other words, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there, even there in the very beginning, we find that the good news came with a sword, in a sense, a sword that divided humanity into two groups that are opposed to each other, two opposing seeds, the seed of the devil versus the seed of God, which was preserved throughout redemptive history by God through his chosen people. And how long did it take? For that enmity, that hostility, that strife to raise its ugly head between these two seeds. Well, not long at all. In the very first generation, that enmity was present between Cain and Abel. Cain, we find, had the seed of the devil in him, whereas Abel had the seed of God planted within him. He was a man of faith. Now, what did Cain do to his brother? He murdered him. He took his life. Some accounts say that he tricked Abel out into a field where he then took a boulder and crushed his skull in cold blood, murdered his own brother. Why? Why would he do such a thing? Well, John tells us here in this passage, he tells us that hatred filled his heart because he was envious of his brother. He was envious of his brother. Cain hated his brother. Why? Because his brother's Good deeds shined a light on his bad deeds. And this is what John says in his gospel account in chapter 3 of his gospel. In verse 20, he says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his works should be exposed. That was the problem. Even though Cain was outwardly religious, he did present an offering to God. His heart was not in it. His heart was in the dark. He was living in darkness, walking in darkness. His deeds were not done in true faith, and therefore they were evil. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 14, 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so because Cain did not have faith, He was not happy to see his brother rewarded for his obedience. He couldn't rejoice with his brother in his obedience and his success. Instead of rejoicing in that which was good, Cain resented his brother for his righteousness. And his his heart was flooded in that moment with bitterness, anger, and rage that eventually rose him to the occasion of murdering his own brother. And notice what John says immediately after explaining why Cain murdered Abel. In verse 13, right after that explanation, John says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. What is John doing? Well, he's reminding us that we who are his brothers in Christ, we who are Christians, that we have the seed of God in us. We are his offspring today, and therefore we are engaged in that same ancient 
battle, that opposition between the two seeds, God's seed and the devil's seed. And so if we are those who are born again, and if we are actively pursuing righteousness, what should we expect from the world? Well, we should expect hatred. We should expect that the seed of the devil in the world will also hate us. In the same way that Abel's righteousness provoked the hatred of Cain, so too the upright living of Christians in this world will provoke the hatred of the world. Even, think of this, even our weak attempts that are fraught with failures and trips along the way, even our weak attempts to pursue righteousness according to God's standard of what is right and wrong, upholding that, is a public reminder to the world that their conscience is in the wrong, that they are in the wrong. It is a public reminder to them. A godly church that aims to uphold the moral standards of God in a post-modern culture that has abandoned the foundation of basic morality will be hated. True godliness is a spotlight that shines on criminals who are trying to escape God's justice. And it causes them to be provoked to anger. Righteousness in action reminds all those who are not in Christ that their works are in fact evil. And that they will not be rewarded on the day of judgment, but instead they will be condemned. And so, beloved of God, my brothers and sisters in Christ, do not be surprised when the world hates you as you pursue the way of Jesus, as you practice righteousness. Do not be surprised. It is to be expected. It is the way of Cain for the world to hate you in that way. It is the way of the devil for the world to hate you. And as God said, it would be. This is the enmity that exists between the two seeds until that defeat of the devil by the seed of the woman, Christ, is fully accomplished and fully realized. And Christ has already conquered the devil in the sea, but we are still waiting for the devil to be fully condemned and cast into the lake of fire. But that leads us now to our second point, the love of Christ. So we, we consider the hatred of the world, now the love of Christ. John tells us in verse 16 that we know love. He's saying that we know a new way to live that is no longer marked by jealousy and resentment and hatred, a self-centeredness. No, it is marked by love, the love of God. And what does John tell us? He says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Jesus said in John 15, 12 to 13, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that is what Christ has done for us. But what does it mean that Jesus laid down his life for his friends? There's a common illustration that captures this well. If you're sitting at the end of a pier waiting there and someone suddenly runs up down to the end of the pier and jumps off the pier into the water and drowns to death, And then another person comes along and tells you, that person just laid down their life for you. How will you react? Well, that's that's madness. How does that apply to me? How is that loving? How is that good for me? Right? It doesn't make any sense. And that's how a lot of people hear about 
the love of God. It doesn't make sense to them. Why did Jesus go to the cross to lay down his life and die for me? How does that help me? But as we change one element in that illustration, it becomes clear. If you're not sitting on the pier, but you happen to fall in over the ledge of the pier and down and you hit your head along the way and you're unconscious, drowning in the water, and someone comes, jumps off the pier, dives down, grabs you and pulls you back to shore, and then you wake up and somebody tells you that person over there laid down his life for you. It makes sense. It's become clear. You know that there was a purpose for him risking his life to save your life. And that helps us see what it means that Jesus laid down his life to save us at a great personal cost to himself. Jesus went to the cross with great purpose. It was to transfer us from the realm of death, John says, to the realm of life, as he says in verse 14. Jesus laid down his life in order to redeem us, that is to forgive us, to justify us, to adopt us into the family of God, to give us an inheritance with him forevermore in the new creation, to fill us with his Holy Spirit as a down payment of all the blessings to come, to renew us and restore within us the image of God, and to make we who were his enemies into his beloved friends and brothers. As we considered last week, He came to take away our sins and to destroy the works of the devil. And so, in stark contrast to Cain, who is the archetypal sinner, Jesus is the archetypal righteous one who has loved us. Whereas Cain was filled with anger that led him to take the life of another, Jesus was filled with love, which led him to give his life for others. When John says in verse 16, by this we know love, he doesn't mean only that we now have a right understanding of love as a concept or a theological doctrine or even a moral reality. Rather, he means that we have received this love of God intimately in our hearts and we know it on a personal level. In fact, down in verse 17, he says that those who have been been born again have God's love abiding within them. It is a reality that is within our own hearts, abiding, residing there, has taken up residence in our hearts. John also says that because of Jesus' love for us, which was, of course, undeserving of pure grace, now we have eternal life abiding in us. And John also says in verse 14 that we know we have passed out of death and into life already because we love the brothers. We no longer abide in death any longer. Now think of this, another illustration. If you found a supernatural portal that led you to an alternate version of this world where no sin and death could be found, would you pass through that portal? Why not, right? Would you not cross over from this realm of death into that realm of life? Well, John tells us that Christians have, in a sense, found that mysterious portal and that they have already crossed over from death to life. What is that mysterious portal? It is our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in John 10:9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. 
And so, according to John here, we have already, because of the love of Jesus, we've already crossed over the Jordan from the desert wasteland of death and into the green pastures of life. Even though Christians, we as Christians, haven't fully crossed over because our body is still here, we have truly crossed over in a spiritual sense. This is confirmed elsewhere where the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so we have been raised up already spiritually, and our life is hidden with Christ in God. As we heard earlier this morning, our anchor is already in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And as we are united to Christ, our life is hidden with him there. Likewise, in Ephesians 2, Paul says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the new reality about us, this spiritual dimension that Christ has delivered us from death and now brought us into life as we have come to know his love. But what does that actually mean practically? It means that born-again Christians have a greater position in power today than the most powerful and prestigious unbelievers in the world. Why? Because even the lowest born-again Christian is seated right now in the heavenly places with Christ by the Spirit of God. And Jesus, the Son of God, upholds every born-again Christian's life and status as righteous and as a living child of God, a rightful heir of the kingdom. That is a new reality about us. We have power and we have position in Christ. Therefore, with this new identity that we have, this new nature, this new status, we must live according to it according to love and life, not hatred and death. And so before we move on, if you have not yet come to Jesus by faith, if you have not yet crossed over from death to life by entrusting yourself to Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, then do so now. He came to give his life over for sinners just like you and like me to redeem and restore them. Give yourself to him. Receive his love. And if you have come to know the love of Christ, even if you've come to know his love tonight, then lastly, we hear for us the call that we would take that love and turn to one another and love one another as he has so loved us. So thirdly, our love for one another. If we look back at verse 11 at the beginning of our passage, John tells us, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John is saying here that this commandment to love one another is one that God has revealed from of old, long ago, to his people, the Israelites, through Moses. And repeatedly, over and over again, he's revealed this call to love. As Jesus says, the whole summary of God's law, the Old Testament law, is summarized in this, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is a summary of God's law. And so it is not entirely new. When Jesus came to give a new commandment to us that we love one another, it's not entirely new. However, what is new about it is this, 
that we have now seen that commandment of God fulfilled in its perfection, in its highest expression in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He has shown us what it means to follow through with loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so now Jesus calls us not only to follow God's commandments, not only to love one another, but also to love one another as he has so loved us. And as John will later say in chapter 4, we are only able to love in that way because he has first loved us. We love because he first loved us. But how are we to love one another? In what ways do we express this love? John tells us in verse 16 that we too must lay down our lives for the brothers. That's a bit general. What does that mean? Well, John gets more specific and tells us in verse 17. He says, if you have the world's goods, that is money and resources and possessions, prosperity, then you must open your heart to provide for your brother and sister in their time of need. He tells us in verse 18 that love must go beyond words. It's not enough that we just say we love one another. We have to show it in both deed and in truth. Actions, personal self-sacrifice to provide for the life-sustaining needs of others. That is love. As we sang earlier, and as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the good. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Notice how Paul's definition of love is in harmony with John's. It includes deed and truth. Love does things. Love is action. Love doesn't just sit around and talk. Love is motivated for the good of others and actually does good deeds for other people. But how does a church full of rich people, like us, love each other? Because practically, if we are honest with ourselves, none of us really has any material needs like John is speaking about in this passage. None of us has such needs. That's not to say that all of our personal finances are what we would like them to be. Or it's not to say that we're never pressed with money. But rather, none of us has to worry about whether or not we will have food to eat or a safe place to rest our head at night. And so we can say that material needs in our context, in our culture, are not really the pressing needs that we have. Does that mean that we're off the hook to love one another? That, ah, well, we don't have to love each other because we don't have material needs. By no means. We're still called to love one another and meet each other's needs, but know this, that not all of our needs are material needs. And so consider these Ways in which we can show brotherly love for one another, not just in word, but also in action and in truth. We can offer emotional support to one another, especially in times of grief. We have emotional needs. You can go and support one another, listening with empathy and bringing encouragement and consolation from God's 
word. And think especially of the shut-ins that we have. It's not just the task of the elders and the ministers to go visit the shut-ins. You too can. They are part of your family as well. Let us visit the shut-ins. Let us reach out to those who are in need of emotional support. Just to have someone come alongside them and weep with them, with those who weep, to pray with them. Also, here's another one. You can provide accountability. We can hold one another and should hold one another accountable in our faith as we help each other grow spiritually in the Lord. Here's another. Share your talents and your skills. God has given each and every one of us different, unique gifts and talents to serve the church, for building up the church. Whether that's cooking or playing an instrument or teaching some skill or showing hospitality, opening up your house to others. These are ways in which we can share with others what God has given us for their well-being to build up the church. Fourthly, we must pray for each other, support each other and lift each other up to God in times of need. We must be a praying people and in that way we show our love for one another. The fifth one, participate in Bible studies and small groups. Why? When we do this, what do we do? We're building a sense of community to combat one of the most dangerous things that we all face in this culture, loneliness and isolation. As we come together, gather together in Jesus' name, we're combating that. We're coming alongside one another. We have a sense of community where we love one another, where we're known and our needs are met together. Additionally, we can volunteer together, right? We can volunteer, offer our time and energy to serve those in the community around us who are in greater need than us and make a positive impact in Jesus' name. And lastly, consider this. Unlike Cain, who was not able to rejoice at his brother's success or celebrate the fact that his brother was rewarded for his good deeds and what he offered to God, we should be a people that celebrate each other's successes, celebrate the milestones that God grants to each of us along the way, that we would be a people that celebrates and rejoices in what God is doing in and through one another. Those milestones, whether it's a new job or some personal accomplishment, let us come alongside each other and celebrate what God has done in each other's life. Let us love each other in these very practical ways. Maybe we don't have material needs, but these are needs that we each have. And these are ways in which we can practically love one another. God has opened up our hearts to his love. Do not close your heart to your brother who needs your love. Let us love one another, not just in word, but also in deed and in truth. Let us love as those who have received God's love in Jesus Christ. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this passage, which reveals to us a stark contrast between those who follow the way of Cain and hatred and strife and enmity and those who have been born again by the Spirit of God and our children of the living God, who have love abiding in their hearts. Lord, we thank you that because of Jesus' sacrifice in our place, that we now have your seed within us and your love abides in us, O God. We ask that you would 
Help us continually to open up our hearts to one another in very practical ways to meet each other's needs, to open up our lives to one another, and so prove to each other and to the world that we are the children of God, for truly we are, by your grace in Jesus Christ. Amen.